Who is already, raise your hand, familiar with the life and ministry of David Martin Lloyd-Jones? All right? Several of you. Who of you have never heard the name? Good, good. Good cross-section of those who might be familiar with him, some very, very well and some not so well. I apologize because I want to make sure both for the sake of time and accuracy, sticking very, very closely to my notes. So I want to be able to give you as much material as I can about the life and and ministry of MLJ, as he has been called. And I think it will be an encouragement to you. I think it will be fascinating because David Martin Lloyd-Jones was and is a compelling figure among evangelicals from his own time and place in the 20th century and who continues to be so up to our own time. His sermons are still being heard on the internet and read in books which are being continuously published by major Christian publishers up to, as I said, even our own day. His life and impact is still being widely discussed. Listen to what some others have said about this Welsh-born preacher who ministered for so many years at Westminster Chapel in London, England, from the 1930s to the late 1960s. J.I. Packer says of him, quote, He was the greatest man I have ever known, and I am sure that there is more of him under my skin than there is of any other of my human teachers. Pretty high praise. Eric Alexander wrote, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the greatest preacher the English-speaking world has seen in the 20th century. Peter Lewis writes, in the history of the pulpit in Britain, preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones is outstanding. He takes his place in a long line of great preachers since the Protestant Reformation who have stood for the reformation and renewal of the church, the evangelization and awakening of the world. Hughes Oliphant Old concurs, the greatest impact is the recovery of true expository preaching. At his death, the famous John Stott wrote, the most powerful and persuasive voice in Britain for some 30 years is now silent. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says this, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of God's special gifts to the church in the 20th century, and the longer time goes on, my admiration of him increases. He had a more profound spiritual vision than anyone else I know. John Piper I am deeply thankful that God led me to Lloyd-Jones in 1968. He has been a constant reminder. You don't have to be cool, hip, or clever to be powerful. In fact, the sacred anointing is simply in another world from those communication techniques. He is who I want to live and when I step into the pulpit. John MacArthur likewise said, No preacher had greater influence on me in my formative years than David Martin Lloyd-Jones. It was his preaching which I absorbed in books without ever hearing his voice that brought together biblical exegesis, sound theology, insightful wisdom, and pastoral care into one clear, well-focused picture. And even Lloyd-Jones' own wife, Bethan Lloyd-Jones, said, No one will ever understand my husband until they realize that he is first of all a man of prayer and then an evangelist. So those are wonderful commendations of the ministry and the life of of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. But who exactly was he? Well, this morning, if you're taking notes, I want to give you five headings, five headings, which will give you a brief snapshot of Lloyd-Jones' life and ministry. And here's the first one, number one. Lloyd-Jones' birth and early life. That's the first heading. Lloyd-Jones' birth and early life. He was born in Wales on December 20th, 1899. 1899. By the way, just as an aside, I read just yesterday or the day before of a person in Camden, Arkansas, which is my home state, who actually is now the oldest living person in America and the second oldest living person in the world, and she is 116, 116. 
and she has no other surviving uh, family members except one, her son, who is 93. 93. And so that meant that she, of course, was born in the 1800s. And that was Lloyd-Jones' time. He was born on December 20th, 1899. He was the second of three boys. His parents attended a church aligned with the Calvinistic Methodist Church, which is very different from uh, our terminology, Methodism, in our own country and beyond. That church denomination was also known then as the Presbyterian Church of Wales. Martin had a very happy early childhood. His home was above his father's store, a a, a grocery store, uh, and he met all kinds of interesting and colorful people as a result of living above that store, met all kinds of folks. But tragically, when Martin was only 10 years old, early in 1909, a fire destroyed the family store and home. His mother and older brother were away at the time, and Martin and his younger brother, Vincent, were suddenly awakened by their father, their home and shop in flames, and Martin was thrown out of an upstairs window by his father, where three men waiting below caught him. His father and brother also narrowly uh, escaped the flames also, just after the floor collapsed beneath them. And so the rest of the home and shop were subsequently completely destroyed, The Lloyd-Jones family attempted to regroup and continue on in the grocery business. Shortly thereafter, when Martin was 11 years old, he went to about four and a half miles from his home, which necessitated that he live in a school boarding house during the week. And he never forgot how lonely he was during the week while he was away from his mom and his dad. And then it was early in 1913 that Lloyd-Jones decided that he wanted to become a medical doctor. And it was also around this time, while he was in school, his father, Henry, began to have significant financial difficulties with his grocery shop business. And in January of 1914, Henry Lloyd-Jones informed the family that they would have to leave their current home due to these severe financial difficulties he was experiencing, never ultimately being able to return to that area of Wales that they so dearly loved. Martin's father thought that possibly the best thing for the family to do was to immigrate to Canada, where presumably he could find substantial work. So he went ahead of his family to Canada, but after much long effort and search, uh, that uh, search for the work proved fruitless. And so by the end of May 1914, Henry Lloyd-Jones decided to return to Britain, and this time attempting to find work in London. And on Saturday, August 1st, 1914, Martin's mother, Magdalene, put him on a train bound for London where he would attempt to assist his father in that job search. It was a very, very difficult time. And if you know anything, of course, about the history of the world at that point, uh, there was great cataclysm that was going to happen uh, just a few weeks and months from that time. Uh, Eleven weeks later, after August 1st, having found a, a modest dairy and milk business in which to purchase a very Uh, in which they purchased for a very small sum, even though he had to borrow the money for the purchase. It was located on 7 Regency Street, Westminster, and the family were reunited in a residence, again, above the grocery shop. And it was there that they began to work in this grocery business, all of the family. It was also during that time that occasionally, even though the Lloyd-Jones family were uh, members of a Calvinistic Methodist church called Charing Cross, Martin, who used to deliver milk for his father near Westminster Chapel, a nonconformist congregational church in Buckingham Gate, and where the famed 51-year-old G. Campbell Morgan was pastor. And Martin would go to the church there at times in order to hear Campbell Morgan preach. More on that later. And it must have also been interesting, and you have to remember that only two days after Lloyd-Jones arrived in London, Germany declared war on France. And subsequently, just one day later, Germany invaded Belgium, as you know, which drew England to declare war on Germany, starting what would later be known, of course, as World War I. So this was a very, very tumultuous time in the history of the world. And while all of this was occurring, Martin, having now resumed his education, listen to this, scored high enough on his school exams that at the tender age of 16 was admitted successfully into medical school at the prestigious St. Bartholomew's Hospital. St. Bart's, they called it, 
one of the finest medical schools in the world, having been established in 1843. Can you imagine somebody who's 16 years of age passing all of their quote-unquote high school exams and now being ready to be admitted into medical school? Try that on for size, some of you who are 16, or parents, if you're thinking of your 16-year-old and his maturity level to enter a hospital setting as a med student. Amazing. For the next several years, Martin studied very, very diligently, and in 1921, he was awarded two degrees for medicine and also ultimately achieved his medical doctor's degree, his MD degree, at the tender age of 23. And he was later even elected to membership in the prestigious Royal College of Physicians at the relatively young age of 25. He's an amazing man, amazing intellect, amazing diligence. He was also asked to become the chief clinical assistant to Sir Thomas Horder, who would later be knighted Lord Horder, his teacher and mentor, who was the personal physician to the Queen of England. So at this very, very young age, an assistant to Lord Horder, physician to the Queen, and he had a very, very plum choice seat as his assistant. And he was very, very recognized and started to become very, very famous. And all these awards, all these accolades were stunning for such a young man. He was at the beginning of what appeared to be a great life of wealth and fame as a prominent physician in one of the most famous places of the world at that time, London, England. Still is, of course, in fact. So that's the early life, uh, the early years of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Second heading. Number two, Lloyd-Jones' salvation and call to ministry. His salvation and call to ministry. Let's talk first of all all about his salvation. I told you he was rising to fame. He was incredibly um, gifted. And yet, two major crises in Lloyd-Jones' families in his family would motivate first this young medical student and later the practicing physician to look at the fragility of life in general and even his own life in particular. In 1918, Martin and his older brother Harold became sick with the flu epidemic. Martin was to recover, but his brother at the age of 20 died. Remember, there were the huge flu epidemic in past generations. So much devastation by the flu epidemic that we know nothing about in our day. Four years later, in 1922, Martin's beloved father, Henry, also died. And this obviously left Martin to ponder greatly the matter of death, those whom he dearly loved, and this undoubtedly left him also to ponder his own mortality and why, uh, with his own brother's death from the flu epidemic, his own life was graciously spared. So it began a journey of his own thinking, critical thinking, There was also at this very time of his father's death a great difficulty within Lloyd-Jones' own heart. He was experiencing severe emptiness of soul, and he became increasingly and acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And although he faithfully attended at Charing Cross, the church that he and his family had attended for several years while in London, he was totally empty inside. And while he was by all accounts considered a regular church member in good standing, he came to discover about himself that he really wasn't a Christian at all. He was a churchgoer. He was a faithful person. He'd become uh, somewhat famous as such a young uh, physician, assistant to Lord Horder, but he knew he wasn't a Christian at all. In fact, Errol Davies, in his brief biography of Lloyd-Jones, and I'm going to show you three books this morning, and this is one of those. It's a very, very brief, it's actually even called Bite-Sized Biographies, published by Evangelical Uh, press books, and uh, this is a nice introductory guide for you if you wanted to study the life uh, and ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's really just over 100 pages. Be a great place to start for you to understand the the amazing impact of this life, so I commend it to you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones by Errol Davies. Errol Davies, in this biography, writes, whether or not a person is converted gradually or suddenly, quietly or more spectacularly, was later unimportant to Lloyd-Jones. What was more important was that the person had become a Christian, however long or short it took. How then did Martin become a Christian? Errol Davies says it was over a long period in his early 20s that God 
dealt with him. In other words, right during the time of his intense medical studies, he was also realizing the angst of his own soul. He goes on to say, It seems that from about the age of 20 until he was 25, God dealt with this medical student deeply and personally. Sin began to trouble him more. He was able to see plenty of evidence around him of the fact that people were sinful. There were, for example, the desperately poor people living in close proximity to the hospital who needed medical help. Their lives were often given over to satisfying their own sinful lusts and desires. He could not ignore the grip that sin had had on their lives. In this way, he came increasingly to accept that man's nature is not essentially good or even neutral, but rather biased and disposed towards sin. But he saw this also with regard to the rich and the famous whom he helped to treat either in the hospital or in Lord Hoarder's Harley Street consulting rooms. Education, money, fame, and even the status of royalty did not deal with man's basic problem of sin and estrangement from God. But this observation was confirmed in his own life as his sense of personal sin and guilt before God deepened. Although a faithful church member and living a decent, respectable life, he now knew the inwardness of his own sin and the powerful lusts which prevailed there and longed for gratification. He recognized he was as much a sinner as anyone else. Years later, he expressed it in his own words. Lloyd-Jones said about himself, He, that is God, brought me to know that I was dead dead in trespasses and sins, a slave to the world and the flesh and the devil, that in me dwelleth no good thing, and that I was under the wrath of God and heading for eternal punishment. He brought me to see the real cause of all my troubles and ills and that of all men. It was an evil and fallen nature which hated God and loved sin. My trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but I myself was wrong at the very center of my being. By the Easter time of 1925, he'd become a Christian. God had saved him. At home in a small study which he shared with his younger brother, Vincent, Martin experienced an overwhelming sense of the love of God towards sinners mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. He now knew that he was forgiven and accepted by God because the Lord Jesus had borne all the guilt and punishment of his sin when he had died on the cross. This was to be the central theme of Lloyd-Jones' preaching and work over the following years. It was the good news of the gospel. Quoting John 3.16 and 1 Peter 2.24, he declared years later, Here is the gospel. He saves us by bearing our punishment and by taking our guilt upon him. God smites him and the law of God is satisfied. The Lamb of God has come. God has provided His own sacrifice. It is His own Son. This is what happened at Calvary's tree. God took your sins and mine and put them on the head of His own Son, and then He smote Him. He punished Him. He struck Him. He killed Him. The wages of sin is death. As Lloyd-Jones discovered, religion or church attendance do not in themselves bring us into a right relationship with God. Listen to Lloyd-Jones' warning. Many people come to listen to the gospel who have been brought up in a religious atmosphere, in religious homes, who have always gone to church and Sunday school, never missed meetings, yet they may be unregenerate. They need the same salvation as the man who who may have come to listen who has never been inside a house of God before. He may have come out of some mortal gutter. It does not matter. It is the same way, the same gospel gospel for both, and both must come in the same way. Religiosity is of no value. Morality does not count. Nothing matters. We are all reduced to the same level because it is by faith, because it is by grace. That was his salvation. That was his testimony. That was his preaching ministry. Now, a little bit of a word about his call to ministry. It's fascinating. His call to ministry. This is still under the second heading his salvation, and his call to ministry. Lloyd-Jones was studying in that little room with his brother Vincent and then a little room off of Lloyd Horder's clinical rooms. 
He was intensely growing spiritually. He was voraciously reading the Scripture, serious study of the Scripture, including, by the way, even privately taking some exams in Greek, trying to study the Greek language, the Greek text of of Scripture, Koine Greek. And he was so serious that he was also considering whether or not he thought himself to be called to vocational ministry as a preacher. And can you imagine that, leaving that medical practice behind, leaving all that fame and fortune It was something those around him couldn't even begin to fathom. Lloyd-Jones' own mother was incredulous. Ian Murray, in his new one-volume biography, and by the way, I want you to also know about this, so I brought it this morning. Uh, There used to be a two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones that Ian Murray has written, and now, so many years later, he decided to condense that into a one-volume edition called The Life of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Uh, for a new generation of readers. What a service. What a ministry. And uh, I commend this volume to you as well. And this is what Ian Murray says about his own mother's response to the potential for Martin to go into ministry. His mother was uncomprehending at such an unexpected turn of events. Generally confident that Martin's judgment was sound, The possibility of his exchanging Harley Street, his medical practice, for a pulpit was more than she could accept. And even Martin himself was struggling with the decision of this magnitude. Murray writes, Martin now found himself in the throes of an intense struggle over whether or not he was right to abandon medicine. It was true he was already established in private practice at Harley Street with the use of one of Hoarder's rooms, and he was also still in the midst of important research work at Bart's, St. Bartholomew's Hospital, the conclusion of which was not in sight. There was also to be considered the Christian influence which he could exercise in the higher ranks of the medical profession open before him. In other words, he had a great platform to exalt Christ in his medical work. On the other hand, he knew what it was to have experiences which rendered all questions of position and self-interest utterly insignificant. One such experience occurred at Easter 1925 in the small study which he shared with Vincent, his younger brother, at their Regency Street home. Alone in that room, on that occasion, he came to see the love of God expressed in the death of Christ in a way which overwhelmed him. Everything which was happening to him in his new spiritual life was occurring because of what had first happened to Christ. It was solely to that death that he owed his new relationship to God. Still, the decision to completely leave that medical profession and go into vocational ministry as a preacher caused a great stir to his soul. What am I to do? Should I do this? He's struggling. He's agonizing. Murray records the struggle. He feared that his initial decision to turn to the ministry had lacked the clear guidance of God. Enough had happened to give him cause to doubt. And how could doubts be consistent with a divine call? Not without much difficulty, he came to the conclusion that he must remain in his present career. In his own words, I went through a great crisis and decided I would not do it. I made a solemn decision to go on with medicine. Lloyd-Jones continued to be vexed in his spirit regarding his aforementioned commitment to stay in medicine. Murray chronicles, For the better part of another year, until the summer of 1926, the the issue which he thought was settled in the spring of 1925 would not leave him. In his own words, it was a very great struggle. I literally lost over 20 pounds in weight. Involved in that struggle and its final outcome were several incidents of which Dr. Lloyd-Jones rarely spoke. Although he was not conscious of it at the time, Murray writes, and despite the spiritual blessing of Easter 1925, an element in his hesitation had come from the degree of attachment which he still felt to the life which he had formerly found so appealing, his medical life, the fame, the, the fortune, the allure, the appealing nature of all of that glamour. Experiences through which he had now to pass were to bring him home to him him yet more powerfully the emptiness of the world's glamour. It was in medicine that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had felt the pull of the world most keenly. And it was this pull which in these months of struggles 
was finally overcome as he came to see more clearly the futility of all earthly ambitions. One particular example, which I remember when I read the first two volumes of the biography of Lloyd-Jones back in the 80s, and I remember reading this, and I remember distinctly laying on my bed. It was probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. I was reading. The light was on. My wife had said to me at least two or three times, when are you going to turn the light off? And I was enraptured by this biographical tale of of Lloyd-Jones and his call to ministry. And I remember, as though it were yesterday, reading this very account of Murray. This is what he says. One of these examples, these realizations of the push and pull of, of the world, one of these occurred during the visit of a family friend who had just married and was busy showing his bride the sights of London. One night, Martin recalled, they wanted to go to a theater in Leicester Square and they persuaded me to go with them. I have no idea what the play was about at all, but they were very excited about it. What I remember is this. As we came out of the theater to the blare and glare of Leicester Square, suddenly a Salvation Army band came along playing some hymn tunes, and I knew that these were my people. I've never forgotten it, he says. There is a theme in Wagner's opera, Tannhauser, the two poles, the pull of the world and the chorus of the pilgrims and the contrast between the two. Lloyd-Jones says, I have very often thought of it. I know exactly what it means. I suppose I had enjoyed the play. When I heard this band and the hymns, I said, these are my people. These are the people I belong to, and I'm going to belong to them. By June of 1926, the struggle was over. He knew what the future must be. It was almost as though the decision was made for him and he could resist it no longer. He would later say, whatever authority I may have as a preacher is not the result of any decision on my part. It was God's hand that laid hold of me and drew me out and separated me to this work. A preacher is not a Christian who decides to preach. He does not just decide to do it. It is God who commands preaching. In fact, I remember a great quote from Lloyd-Jones where people were saying after he went into the ministry and people were saying, well, but what about about this this medical profession that you studied so diligently for and all of this uh, praise and adoration, all of the things that come with it and you must have given up so much to go into the ministry. And in typical wealth fashion, he says, rubbish, I gave up nothing. For no man is so blessed than the one who is called by God to be a herald of the gospel. The struggle is over. He wrote a subsequent letter later that month in June 1926 to the man who would become his brother-in-law in which he declared this, I want to preach more than ever. I am determined to preach. The precise nature of my future activities remain to be settled, but nothing can or will prevent my going about to tell people of the good news. And that Martin Lloyd-Jones did. At first, though, he was to marry Bethan Phillips, whom he met when their families worshipped together for several years at Charing Cross, the church that they had attended together. On January 8th, 1927 was their wedding day. And right after their marriage, Lloyd-Jones, having been in discussions with his denomination the previous fall, was commissioned to a blue-collar area of Wales on the Port Talbot coast near a Berevan in Sandfields, a rough area on the coast that was home to the poor, to the working class people. It was not necessarily a place where someone would assume that the physician's assistant to the queen would go. But there he went. He would become an evangelist to his beloved Welshman. He loved his home country of Wales, and he wanted to go to those people and preach the gospel. Third heading, third heading. Lloyd-Jones Pastoral Ministry at Sandfields and Westminster Chapel. Let's talk first about Sandfields. From his very first Sunday as pastor, and a lot of people don't realize that for almost 12 years he was a pastor not in Westminster Chapel in London, but in Sandfields in Wales. Not as well known as his time at Westminster Chapel, but he became pastor February 6, 1927, 
And he set about on regular Sundays thereafter to preach one sermon to believers and then an evangelistic sermon on Sundays for those who were not believers or those who thought they were but may have been deceived. And that's really the pattern that he continued at Westminster Chapel itself. He immediately began to be noted for his preaching ministry in Sandfields and elsewhere in the UK. He was beginning to be invited all over the United Kingdom uh, to preach the gospel. And this effect of his own preaching greatly impacted uh, a person he loved the most, his own wife. Listen as Ian Murray describes it. Lloyd-Jones' own wife had come into a state of concern and conviction. Having attended church and prayer meetings from childhood, Bethan Lloyd-Jones had always believed that she was a Christian. Not until she heard Martin preach for the first time on his second visit to Sandfield in December 1926, sort of a candidating message, where it was she confronted in his sermon on Zacchaeus with an insistence that all men are equally in need of salvation from sin. The message shook her, Ian Murray said, even frightened her. And she almost resented the teaching, which appeared to place her in the same condition as those who had no religion at all. In a sense, she had always feared God. Her life was upright, and yet she knew that she had no personal consciousness of the forgiveness of sins, no sense of inward joyful communion with Christ. Here's her own words. I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning, and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I don't really know anything about it. I recall sitting in the study at 57 Victoria Road, and I was unhappy. I suppose it was conviction. I felt a burden of sin. And I shall always remember Martin saying as he looked through his books, read this. And he gave me John Angel James, the anxious inquirer directed. Bethan Lloyd-Jones says, I've never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. His death was well able to clear all my sins away. There, at last, I found release, and I was so happy. Sandfields was a very, very happy place for the Lloyd-Jones. They loved it. They loved ministering to the down-and-outers, uh, to those who were the commoners, the poor, the dock workers. And they would come here, Lloyd-Jones preach, and they were coming to Christ by the droves. They were experiencing great growth in the conversion of sinners. And throughout his almost 12 years of ministry there, Lloyd-Jones was also preaching in a wide variety of other places with great effect. People were hearing about his ministry. But in his preaching, both at Sandfields and elsewhere, Lloyd-Jones was beginning to be very, very overworked. He was exhausted, tired, was preaching all the time, working hard, and he felt his time in Wales might be coming to a close. He was physically exhausted. One newspaper had actually correctly captured his state at the time. Now, there were many newspapers that were wrongly perceiving what was going on, and they were erroneously reporting things, but this one particular article had captured it somewhat well. It says, he said he was resigning, that is from Sandfields, because he was grossly overworked, and he was a tired man, and had the desire for a complete change and rest before he undertook the further work which his denomination had for him in the future. So, in July 1938, to the consternation of so many in that beloved church, the Lloyd-Jones family left a Baravon Sandfields Wells. It had been a great ministry of evangelism and discipleship. And of course, in the grand providence of God, that being overworked, that tiredness was really, as he got some rest, propelling him to the next and really final platform, the stage, the major stage of his ministry. So not knowing exactly what the Lord had in store for Lloyd-Jones in the future, he nevertheless received a letter from the man who, whom he had heard preach a few times in London in his own teen years, G. Campbell Morgan. Morgan had been the pastor of Westminster Chapel all of those years prior when Lloyd-Jones as a teenager was there, then he left, and then he'd come back to help out another pastor, and then that pastor had died, 
and Campbell Morgan took over as the sole pastor of Westminster Chapel, even he himself being in his later years. He was at Westminster Chapel, G. Campbell Morgan was, from 1904 to 1917, and then he returned there as pastor in 1932. Don't always have a pastor that returns to their pastorate. He did. By 1938, Morgan, now this older man, sought Lloyd-Jones out as one who could assist him in preaching duties, at least on an interim basis, which would also give Lloyd-Jones time to ponder what his next ministry steps might be. So in September of 1938, Lloyd-Jones agreed to come to Westminster Chapel, at least for the foreseeable future, to serve in a temporary capacity while waiting on the Lord to providentially give him his next ministry assignment. However, after only a month, Campbell Morgan asked Lloyd-Jones to become his permanent co-pastor. Morgan was 76 years old at that point, and he needed much help. And so, on December 8, 1938, this co-pastoral arrangement was proposed, and it was unanimously affirmed by the congregation, only after a few months that Lloyd-Jones had been preaching there. But Lloyd-Jones declined. He declined. At 39 years of age, and uncertain that this was the Lord's settled plan for him, he gave a number of different factors, but he nevertheless declined. And yet... After only much protracted prayer with he and Bethan, his wife, and when only finally sure of his path, on April 23, 1939, he agreed to become Campbell Morgan's permanent co-pastor. It was an interesting arrangement. Interesting in this, Campbell Morgan was an able preacher. He was somewhat famous himself, but he was Arminian in his theology. And Lloyd-Jones himself was decidedly Calvinistic, even though he didn't generally use those labels. But they genuinely loved each other as brothers in Christ. And it was also the basis behind Lloyd-Jones seeking unity with those who were Calvinists or Arminians alike. And so it was a good union in that sense because of their love for the Lord. Lloyd-Jones would now be formally inducted and installed as co-pastor of Westminster Chapel. But because of some scheduling and logistical challenges, including some summer vacation time and whatnot, this being around the time where Lloyd-Jones would be absent, spending his summers in his beloved Wales, it was decided that there was no suitable date until Monday, September 4th, 1939, where he would be officially installed. And when that time frame came, the weekend was completely overshadowed by something far larger. Now, just one year into his mutual ministry with G. Campbell Morgan, and with Morgan himself set to preach Sunday morning, September 3rd, and Lloyd-Jones expecting to preach on that same Sunday evening, Morgan received a note from someone right around 11 a.m. And with that slipped note to Morgan, in the pulpit and just about to preach, the note stated that England had just declared war on Germany. World War II had begun. A few moments later, the air raids then sounded, but only as a precautionary measure and for purposes of a trial run. Morgan stopped the service, with both the Sunday evening service later that evening being canceled, the next day's induction service also being canceled, and uncertainties abounded for everyone. For Lloyd-Jones, and of course for everyone in England, and London particularly at that time, the implications of war were all around them. It was said, confusion, fear, and the constant expectation of heavy aerial bombing by the Germans, air raid sirens in shelters, the wearing of gas masks, the evacuation of many children and even families all contributed to the tension felt by residents. It was a very, very somber time. And even in the midst of all the uncertainty, however, Lloyd-Jones continued to preach, continued to preach powerful sermons and became so widely known, not only as a preacher, but also as an important evangelical leader, even through those war years, an advisor, a guide to university students and their Disciples especially, and their disciples, fellow pastors, church leaders. On a Sunday in July 1943, G. Campbell Morgan announced that at 80 years of age, he would be stepping down from the pastorate at Westminster Chapel. He knew the church was in good hands with Lloyd-Jones, and they'd, they'd experienced that joy of five years of ministry together. And this is what he said, quote, I am greatly comforted and helped by my colleague. He is a remarkable preacher and a delightful personality. I cannot tell you with what pleasure I listen to him. It is mighty preaching, most appropriate for these days. And with that, 
G. Campbell Morgan retired. And from then on, Lloyd-Jones became the sole pastor of the church. From October 3rd, 1943, after a family holiday, he established a pattern of one Sunday sermon for believers and the other a more directly intended evangelistic sermon designed primarily for unbelievers, though he hoped that each time he preached evangelistically, it would be of great encouragement to those who were already Christians. And that was his pattern. Sunday morning, generally a message for believers. Sunday night, generally a message evangelistically. Each time he preached, he spoke of a word of the gospel. That's what he loved. And we know, of course, World War II came to an end with V-Day on May 8, 1945. And just a few days removed from that, on May 16th, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, the esteemed colleague and friend of Lloyd-Jones for the last seven years, was dead. Lloyd-Jones was now aged 45. What remained in the people at Westminster after G. Campbell Morgan's death was anything but exciting and dynamic, however, because there was an old guard. They were very loyal to Campbell Morgan. And even that Arminian flavor was pervasive to them. And so... Uh, they began uh, some critical remarks about this man, Lloyd-Jones, being the sole pastor of Westminster. Murray writes, The war had broken up, in the, broken up the 1939 congregation. Since then, the numbers had increased to about 500, yet not for the most part by Londoners. From 1945, the many uniformed figures in the pews were scattered by demobilization and soon became a thing of the past. People began to return to London Lloyd-Jones said of this time, but we lost the vast majority of our membership. Pre-war remnant that remained was middle-aged and er elderly. And they were not, some of them, particularly happy with Lloyd-Jones' brand of preaching that was so Calvinistic. But slowly, surely, Lloyd-Jones preaching each Lord's Day, God began to grant great growth within the church in those post-war years. It had not been an easy transition. He'd thought of leaving. He thought of going somewhere else. But he started a couple of initiatives that proved very, very successful. One was a Friday evening time devoted to what they called fellowship and discussion, which, by the way, became the basis for the opportunity for Lloyd-Jones to begin to preach the book of Romans. That is a wonderful fellowship and discussion, isn't it? And he spent many years doing that. By 1948, he could write this, My own experience is that I am increasingly conscious of being surrounded and supported by a truly spiritual fellowship. In other words, people were understanding the gospel and they were being converted, and he was so very grateful for that. Any thoughts of Lloyd-Jones and any misgivings about leaving Westminster Chapel due to the tensions with the old guard within the church fellowship and to potentially go elsewhere were now removed. Lloyd-Jones was having, even at this time, an amazing impact, especially on university students, including one young man named... Jim Packer, J.I. Packer. Ian Murray writes about this newfound relationship between the young man Packer and Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom everybody called, even his wife, by the way, the doctor. The doctor. Here are Packer's own words. My own first meeting with the doctor took place when Raymond Johnston and I, both still students, went to his vestry to float before his eyes our vision of an annual Puritan Studies Conference and to seek his help in making it a reality. I was struck at the time by the air of suppressed excitement with which he welcomed the idea, as well as by his extreme forthcomingness. Not only would he host us at Westminster Chapel, but he would be permanent chairman and get the ladies of the church to produce free lunches and teas. Thereafter, he treated the two days of the conference as an unbreakable engagement. And when one year I could only be present for one day, he was very cross and accused me of getting my priorities wrong. Years down the line, when the conference had grown from the 20 who met in 1950 to 200 and more, he told me that he had seen the interest that Raymond and I showed in publicizing Puritan standards of faith and devotion as one of a series of signs that God was starting to revive his work in Britain and therefore, he had given it all the backing he could. Lloyd-Jones did indeed chair this Puritan Studies Conference, later to be known as the Westminster Conference, and he chaired that conference from 1950 to 1979. And from 1959 to 1978, he was always the one to give the closing address. 
Packer and Lloyd-Jones would enjoy some 20 blessed years of working together in these conferences with great fruit in the interests of Reformed theology, especially as seen in the Puritans. These days of great and revived interest in the Puritans might have become known as some of the most important steps in seeing a revival of interest in God-centered ministry, teaching, and church life. But things were starting, still underneath the surface at first, and as yet somewhat unperceived at that point in the mid-1950s, but which would later lead to a serious trouble ahead, especially during the decades of the 1960s. And that's our next heading, Lloyd-Jones' crisis years with evangelical unity. Lloyd-Jones' crisis years with evangelical unity. Something was brewing. As Lloyd-Jones' ministry became even wider in its influence, he also began to encounter much more opposition. That opposition had primarily to do with doctrine, and Lloyd-Jones was being perceived as, as narrow and arrogant. This conflict began to bleed over also into church polity, particularly with Anglican clergy and their doctrinally mixed denomination. This was a, a major event in the life of Lloyd-Jones, and we need to spend a little bit of time talking about it. Murray recounts some of the real issues which started in the middle part of the 1950s, as does Errol Davies in this little short biography. Listen to what Davies says. This is the background. For some years, Lloyd-Jones had been troubled concerning the shallowness of English evangelicalism and its aversion to doctrine. This was a long-standing problem dating back to the 19th century and the formation of the Evangelical Alliance, the EA. The result was that a broad expression of evangelicalism had developed in the 20th century which tended to minimize doctrine. Now, the major changes afoot in Christendom raised major issues like this. What is a Christian? What is a church? And what does the Bible teach about Christian unity? You see, in these denominations, especially Anglicanism, we know it in America, of course, as Episcopalianism. It's the Church of England, and it's a doctrinally mixed denomination. In other words, you can have true Christians in the denomination, but you can have broadly, even as we see in the liberal Episcopal Church of today, liberals who are standing beside evangelicals in the church. Quote unquote. And this was what was happening. And people were beginning to say, well, then what is a Christian? What is Christian unity? What does the Bible teach about it? Davies said these questions raised basic questions concerning the fundamental truths of Christianity. And Lloyd-Jones showed that churches which had imbibed liberal theology and sacramentalism would get the answers to these questions all wrong. And so everywhere he would speak, he would talk about true Christian unity. What does it mean to be a Christian? Continually and with great, a great deal of patience over several years, Lloyd-Jones attempted to push the United Kingdom for true gospel unity, those who were truly regenerate among both non-denominational churches as well as denominations, including the official state church, the Church of England. But he kept pressing the issue, who is a true Christian? What is true Christian unity? How do we really rally around what the church really stands for and what the church itself really is? And the real question about unity was whether or not those who were genuine Christians, like J.I. Packer, an Anglican, like John Stott, an Anglican, prominent Anglicans, should press themselves for true, genuine gospel unity within their own denomination. Pressing these men to do so. In other words, you go and you shout from the housetops yourselves within your own Anglicanism what the true gospel is, what true unity is, what the true church is. He was pressing them to do such things. Pressing them not to be content with only having a small wing within their denomination of evangelicals, but to press forward, make the issues clear. In 1970, after much controversy over gospel unity issues, which happened all through the 60s, including a major conference in which Lloyd-Jones Lloyd spoke in 1966, which caused a huge ruckus. John Stott was convening the conference. And after Lloyd-Jones spoke, Stott believed that there might even be Anglicans in that room at that conference hearing Lloyd-Jones who might be able 
to be saying to themselves right in the moment, we should leave our denomination tonight. It was that powerful. And Stott fearing that those men might do so and Stott being on the other side of the issue of how do you influence your denomination for true gospel unity got up and as the convener of the conference said, with all due respect, I think both history and scripture is against the good doctor. And so it started to fissure, not personally, not relationally between these men, but in terms of what is the church? What is the true Christian? How do you influence your denomination for the sake of the gospel? And so these men became fractured. And over the next couple of years, the friendship was intact between Lloyd-Jones and someone like Jim Packer, his junior of 20 years, but nonetheless, they could no longer work together in public conference ministry. It was a sad time when it was apparent that Lloyd-Jones and Packer and others, of course, could not agree about how to best solve these dilemmas of gospel unity. The two were to stop their public association with the Puritan conferences, which they'd held together for some 20 years. There's a third book that I think is wonderfully done by Ian Murray, written by him as well, called Lloyd-Jones, Messenger of Grace. And as far as I know, this was published in 2008, and this is the first time that a personal letter from Lloyd-Jones had been published between the correspondence of himself and Jim Packer. Here's what he says, Reverend Dr. James I. Packer, my dear friend, July 7, 1970, it is with a very heavy heart and deep regret that I write this letter. I do so on behalf of John Kiger and David Fountain as well as myself. The three of us as the free church members, they weren't a part of a denomination so-called, the free church members of the committee of the Puritan Conference met together yesterday during the lunch interval of the monthly minister's fellowship. What had preceded this was Jim Packer and another thoroughgoing evangelical. These men are believers. These men are Christians. The question is, how do you influence your denomination for the cause of Christ? Apparently, Packer and another thoroughgoing evangelical Anglican banded together with two Anglo-Catholics, Anglicans who were more sort of um, moving toward a kind of Catholicism, but again, remaining in the Anglican church. So they were called Anglo-Catholics. And the four of them wrote a book called Growing Into Union, into which Lloyd-Jones and others thought that Packer and those evangelical Anglicans had gone way too far with way too much compromise. The letter goes on, In the fellowship we spent morning and afternoon in, discussion, in discussing Growing Into Union, this book, the general opinion there, without a single voice to the contrary, was that the doctrinal position outlined in that book cannot be regarded as being evangelical, still less Puritan. The three of us, therefore, feel most reluctantly that we cannot continue to cooperate with you in the Puritan Conference. To do so would be, at the least, to cause great confusion in the minds of all free church evangelical people and, indeed, also a number of Anglican people. We suggest, therefore, that no conference be held this year and that a simple notice to that effect be inserted in the report for 1969 and also in the Evangelical Magazine and in the Evangelical Times list of meetings for December. This, I feel sure, will not come as a surprise to you, as you must have known that the views expounded in the book concerning tradition, baptism, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and bishops, not to mention the lack of clarity concerning justification by faith only, could not possibly be acceptable to the vast majority of people attending the Puritan Conference. Your mind is made up, and you have stated clearly that no wedge shall be driven between you and your Anglo-Catholic associates. There is no purpose, therefore, in any discussion, and the last thing we would desire would be to do anything that could in any way harm our personal relationships. I could write much, but I must not weary you. You have known throughout the years not only my admiration for your great gift of mind and intellect, but also my deep regard for you. I had expected that long before this, you would have produced a major work in the B.B. Warfield tradition, but you have felt called to become involved in ecclesiastical affairs. This to me is nothing less than a great tragedy and a real loss to the church. After all these years, I am saddened at the thought that we shall not meet regularly year by year at the conference and at other odd times. 
but I sincerely hope that we shall be able to maintain some personal contact. I shall always be interested in you and your career and in you as a family, and what I say for myself is true of us as a family. We have often disagreed about people, but never about you. With warmest regards and good wishes from John Kiger, David Fountain, and myself and the family, yours ever sincerely, D.M. Lloyd-Jones. What a sad time. But Lloyd-Jones thought so deeply about his position of true gospel unity in a mixed denomination. He assumed that there might be Anglicans who could remain inside like Packer, but not at the expense of a book like Growing into Union. Dr. Packer and the Reverend G.S.R. Cox were the Anglican members of the Puritan Conference Committee. In his reply of July 9, 1970, Packer agreed to the termination of the conference and wrote, I naturally regret that you and David and John have felt bound to take this line, but I recognize it as one more application of the principles of cooperation which you have been advocating so strongly in recent years and which, as you know, have never convinced me. My respect for you and my gratitude for what God has given me through you in the past remains undimmed. You know, even if you disagree with each other and you're British, it sounds so much better. (laughs) You ever notice that? The disagreement sounds so charming. The two men met in October to discuss the above issue, but the difference of judgment was never resolved. Packer believed that MLJ's position represented a withdrawal from the historic fellowship which evangelicals had always shared on essentials. MLJ held that it was Anglican evangelicals who were introducing serious change, for they were acting as though the evangelical understanding of how an individual comes into the possession of salvation was not uniquely different from contrary teaching. Packer responded to a call from Regent College, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, in 1979, and his teaching and writing contributed largely to the recovery of interest in the Puritans, which has taken place in North America, and that is true. Wendy Zoba writes in Christianity Today of this difference with MLJ. Ten years after their their estrangement in 1970, Packer wrote his friend and colleague, Martin Lloyd-Jones, asking to visit him on his forthcoming trip to England. Lloyd-Jones, who had been ill, encouraged him to come. I never saw him, Packer says. He died before I could get there. It didn't make a great deal of difference, he says. There's always heaven. It was a hard time, but you could tell that these men loved each other greatly. And that really signals the fifth and last heading, Lloyd-Jones' later ministry and final years his later ministry and final years as we conclude. In 1968, Lloyd-Jones was stricken with cancer and he felt that that was in the providence of God an indication that he should resign from his pastorate at Westminster Chapel, pastorate that he'd held for 30 years. So suddenly and without any warning, when he had to go into the hospital over a weekend, he had an, an obstructed colon for which he had to have some surgery based on the complications from the cancer. He thought this was the Lord's timing, and so he resigned uh, on Monday, the following day, after someone had replaced him in the pulpit. And so from 1938 to 1968, that was the 30-year preaching ministry of Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. He spent his remaining years, after recovering from that treatment of cancer, preaching for other ministerial friends, increasing his ministry to young pastors especially, to encouraging them in the gospel, even traveling to places like the United States where he delivered the famous lectures on preaching at Westminster Theological Seminary, of which a book, Preaching and Preachers, has been published to the delight of many, many preachers over the years. He also spent a great deal of time over the last decade plus of his life working on putting his sermons into book form. Uh, The the book of Romans, all the way until the very place where he stopped in Romans 14 as he retired, are all now in book form. The book of Ephesians uh, from chapter 1-1 all the way through to the end. Someone told me this morning that they have been listening through the preaching of Lloyd-Jones and uh, specifically the the book of Ephesians. Uh, You can listen to his uh, material on oneplace.com or you can even just Google David Martin Lloyd-Jones and find the Martin Lloyd-Jones Recordings Trust. All of his sermons now are available free of charge to listen to. It's a wonderful thing. 
He spent a great deal of time with his children and his grandchildren in those last days, encouraging his family, his friends. But during the latter part of the 70s and into 1980 and 81 itself, as I read earlier from from Dr. Packer, Lloyd-Jones' cancer had returned. It had returned, and he was dying, and he knew it. And this from Ian Murray's touching, touching biography. And by the way, if you have the two-volume version of the biography, there are things that have been rewritten and added, and so you really need to pick up this one volume. I gain no royalties from telling you that, but I love reading. Here's what it says about his near death. Throughout these months, his daily care was in the hands of his wife, Bethan, supported by Anne, who was always close at hand, one of the daughters, and Elizabeth, another daughter. They had two. He would often refer with great thankfulness to Bethan and sometimes to the time 55 years earlier when, instead of marrying others as he had feared possible, she became his wife. As with every Christian husband, father, and grandfather, he had not found it easy to contemplate leaving a much-loved family, but he now had assurance that all would be well for them and could say, when this illness came, because of my being the one who had made the decisions, I was a bit troubled about Bethan and the children after I have gone and tended to worry as to what would happen to them. I've been delivered from it completely. I know that God can care for them very much better than I can, and that no longer troubles me at all. He continued to give help with his biography, though as we, he and Ian Murray, spoke of things long past, he was more like an onlooker commenting on someone else's life rather than his own. He was terribly weak and steadily losing ground. On the phone on February 13, 1981, he thought he was, quote, better today, unquote, but confessed, quote, he had not had a very good week, end quote. On February 19th, his voice weak and husky, he spoke of being much the same. It was our last conversation. And by the way, Ian Murray was a three-year assistant to Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel. And Lloyd-Jones supported Ian's desire, along with others, to start the Banner of Truth Trust publications, which we enjoy ourselves even today. So he says, it was our last conversation, for in the following week, he gradually lost the strength and breath with which to speak, and communication with the family had to continue by a nod of his head, by a look or sign or one or two very brief notes. Among his last audible words were those spoken to his consultant, his medical doctor, Grant Williams, who visited him on February 24th. When Mr. Williams wanted to give him some antibiotics, MLJ shook his head in disagreement. Well, said his doctor, when the Lord's time comes, even though I fill you up to the top of your head with antibiotics, it won't make any difference. His patient still shook his head. I want to make you comfortable, more comfortable. Williams went on, it grieves me to see you sitting here weary and worn and sad, quoting Bonner's well-known hymn. That was too much for MLJ. Not sad, he declared. Not sad. The truth was that he believed the work of dying was done and he was ready to go. Last night, Grant Williams wrote to MLJ's local doctor on February 25th, he refused to take any antibiotic could hardly talk, and I think will die very shortly. I think he's very lucid and knows exactly what he wants to do. At one point in these last few days with his speech gone, as Elizabeth, his daughter, sat beside him, he pointed her very definitely to the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, which begin, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When I asked him, says Elizabeth, his daughter, if that was his experience now, he nodded his head with great vigor. On Thursday evening, February 26th, in a shaky hand, he wrote on a scrap of paper for Bethan and the family, Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. The next day he was full of smiles for the little circle who gathered round him and by these and gestures he spoke so clearly that we almost forgot the absence of his voice. 
By rolling one hand over another and pointing, he might request one of us particularly to speak or clasping his hands together to pray. On Saturday, still in his sitting room chair, he slept some hours and at other times appeared to be unconscious. At bedtime, it was clear that he was unconscious and with only Mrs. Lloyd-Jones and Anne, his other daughter present, for the first time there was the problem of not knowing how to get him to the bedroom in the front of the house. This need was met by two kind ambulance men who responded willingly to Mrs. Lloyd-Jones' call for help and put him to bed. There, a little while later, he came around and knew at once what was happening. To Bethan's inquiry whether he would like a cup of tea, he nodded, and while she went to make it, Anne prayed with him. He then drank some of the tea as Bethan and Anne sat with him for about half an hour before sleeping. For over 50 years, he had followed Robert Murray McShane's calendar for daily Bible readings. And one of those readings for the day just ended, February 28th, was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Perhaps the conclusion of that chapter, Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, or the words of Anne's prayer were in his consciousness as he fell quietly asleep. We cannot know, for his next awakening was in the land of the blessed. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. March 1st, 1981, he went to the glory. Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's bow together and pray. Father, we thank you for this life, but we thank you, oh, so much more, infinitely more, for the life of the Lord Jesus whom he preached. For if Lloyd-Jones were here himself, he would doubtless be embarrassed, forlorn, about the fact that we spent so much time talking about his life and ministry, and not the ministry of the one to whom he was wholly captivated. Lord, thank you for a retrospective on a life well lived and we pray that you would make the consciousness of this man through his sermons, through his preaching, through these books, through these biographies resound redound to the glory of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord we pray that you would Continue to raise up preachers like Lloyd-Jones. Thank you for the many men who have been impacted by him that grow even by the day through the ministry because even though he is dead, he yet speaks books through his sermons. May we listen to them on the internet. May we read these books and may we be impacted afresh and anew for a man whose theology in his preaching was logic on fire. May we continue to be blessed by the ministries of these kinds of men for your glory, for your honor, for the good of the church, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and for the glory and great name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.